So if you're a visitor, my name is Martin Slack. I'm the pastor of uh, Westlake. And this is the last in our summer series on Christ in the Old Testament. Now, uh, when I was at secondary school, I did not enjoy standing up in public and speaking, you know, standing up in the, um, in the classroom. And so to combat that, I decided to join the school debating club to try and get over it. And I got taught two maxims. Okay, probably, you know, you've heard both of these already. The first one was, if you're going to speak in public, stand up, speak up, and shut up. I suspect some of you wish I paid more attention to the last bit of that. <laughs> um, the second maxim was, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you've told them. Okay, this morning, I'm going to do the exact opposite of that. I'm going to start by telling you what I am not going to tell you. Because the truth is, and, I, and I'm sure those who've done the speaking over the summer for us would agree, we have not even begun to scratch the surface of what the Old Testament has to say to us about the Lord Jesus. And so we could go to multiple different places to wrap up this series. Okay, we could look at how Jesus is the wisdom of the wisdom literature, how he is the one greater than Solomon. Or we could go to Isaiah chapter 6, and where Isaiah has this vision in the temple of the Lord high and lifted up. And then we could go to the Apostle John in his gospel and see how John says that when Isaiah saw what he saw, in actual fact, he was seeing Jesus the glory of God incarnate. Or we could go to the temple or the tabernacle before it, and we could see how both point to Christ, the one greater than the temple. Or we could go to the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah and see how Jesus is the king who comes humbly on a donkey, but whose rule will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We're not going to go to any of those places. We are going back to our first reading. We're going back to Genesis, to where it all went wrong. And we're going to look at blessing and curse and at this very first promise that Christ is going to put everything right. So let me begin by asking you, would you rather be blessed or cursed? It's not a hard one, is it? I mean, even if you're here and you are not yet a Christian, okay, even if your idea of curse goes no further than the curse of Tutankhamun's tomb, or the curse of the Kennedy clan, or of a voodoo witch doctor sticking pins in a doll, however you define blessing and curse, you would rather be blessed, wouldn't you? First point then, the desire for blessing. Now the Bible begins, Genesis begins with the account of creation. But if you look at it, embedded into it is God's desire that his world and you in it should be blessed. Okay, he creates all of the creatures that fill the seas and all of the the flocks of birds in the air with their incredible array of colors. And then Genesis says, and God saw that it was good and blessed them. 
saying, be fruitful and multiply. And then he makes man and woman in his image, you and me, the pinnacle of his creation. And Genesis says, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, uh, maybe you've got a fridge, I suspect you've got a fridge, and maybe on your fridge is a fridge magnet with the word blessed on it. Or maybe you have seen or posted on Instagram, hashtag blessed. What does that mean? What What does the state of being blessed mean? It means to thrive, doesn't it? It means to flourish in life. It means for life to be good. It means to be living into all that you were supposed to be, all that you're meant to be. In fact, if you think about it, in the Old Testament, there is this great high priestly blessing that Aaron was to say over to the people, over the people. And it describes blessing, the state of being blessed, as living under God's smile. Number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Just look at that. Look how line is laid upon line telling you this is what it means to be blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It means to be kept by God secure in him it means to have his face shining upon you to have his grace his undeserved favor poured out upon you it is to know his countenance the the goodness of his character turned towards you and as a result you enjoy shalom a deep peace and rest and inner sense of well-being deep down We all want that. Now, if that were not enticing enough, Psalm 1 adds another dimension. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, uh, last week um, in our village, which is the village that stands above Quentin's village down in the ditch, okay, in our village we had a whirlwind pass through and across the fields. And I know it's nothing like the kind of whirlwinds that some of you Americans get in Tornado Alley, but for us in Bournon, okay, this was something to notice and talk about. And you could see this whirlwind. I mean, how did we know there was a whirlwind? You could see it because it sucked up all the chaff of the harvest. And there were these corn husks and barley stalks, and they were all being whipped up and carried away in the funnel. But you know what? It did not budge the trees. Now, sure, their leaves rustled a bit. Yeah, maybe their branches bent. But the trees stayed where they were. 
And the psalmist is saying, that is what it means to be blessed. It is to be the opposite of chaff. You are fruitful and fresh in every season of life and you're rooted, you're stable, you're grounded. Storms come, but once they have passed, you are still standing. And so in Deuteronomy 28, which Suzanne just read to us, Moses makes clear that the blessing that God wants us to live under stretches out and over every area, every domain of our lives. Blessed in the city and blessed in the field. Blessed in your family and blessed in your farm. Blessed in your basket and blessed in your bread bowl. Blessed when you go out and blessed when you come in. In other words, God's desire is that in every part of your life, physical, relational, work, leisure, every area will flourish. Now, who would not want that? Who does not want to flourish and thrive like that and to still be standing when the storm has passed? But of course, there lies a problem, doesn't it? Because we all want the blessing But what Deuteronomy 28 and Psalm 1 tell us is that that blessing comes from walking with God and obeying his law. And what Genesis 3 tells us is that, sure, we want that blessing. It's the God part. It's the walking with him. It's the obeying of his law. It's the doing as he says that we stumble over. Second point then. The reality of curse, the desire for blessing, but the reality of curse. And in the Garden of Eden, the Satan, sorry, the serpent tempts Adam and Eve through Eve to find that life of blessing apart from God. Genesis 3, 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is that? I'll tell you what it is. It is the temptation to define for yourself what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, what the life of blessing looks like. It is the temptation to make God's word subject to your judgment And you stand over it rather than it standing over you. It is to turn God's judgment of death on its head and make it look like life and the pursuit of life. And thriving under God's smile is made to look like death and death is made to look like life. It is the temptation to see God as opposed to your good. And for you to try and find self-fulfillment, the blessed life, apart from him. And not for the last time, humans listened to the creature rather than the creator. And they fell for it. And just as the serpent promised, their eyes were opened. Just not like they expected. They were open to their nakedness. Open to their shame 
open to a growing unease with each other, open to accusation and blame shifting against each other. And again, not for the last time, sin delivered its terrible anticlimax. A life of freedom had been promised them, and instead, the life of flourishing withered before their eyes. And the blessed life that God had in store for them, and by extension, you and me, disappeared like a puff of smoke. And in place of blessing, what do they do? They hide. First, they hide from each other, metaphorically, as they cover themselves up. And then they hide literally from God. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And we have been hiding ever since. You see, to pursue life, to pursue the life of blessing apart from the one who made you, can never deliver that life, the life that deep down all of us are seeking. And yet, Genesis 3 tells us, it's worse even than that. It's not just that apart from God, you cannot achieve that life of blessing. It is that in place of blessing has come curse. And standing in the garden, God pronounces judgment first on the serpent, verse 14. Cursed are you above all livestock. And verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But then he turns to the woman. And in verse 16, it says that from now on, he will multiply her pain in childbearing. And her desire will be for her husband, but her husband will rule over her. Get that? In the very area where she was supposed to experience God's blessing, in her relationship with her husband, in being fruitful and multiplying, she is going to experience pain and a wrestling match for power and control. Then God turns to the man. And if the woman is to experience pain in being fruitful, so is he. Verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. So from now on, all of his work, all of his labor, all of his efforts to be fruitful are going to be met with frustration, with things not working the way they should work, with what Ecclesiastes calls the heaven of life. And all of this until, verse 19, you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, we can be tempted to think that we can obtain the blessed life apart from God. The reality is very different, isn't it? Now, sure, we can know moments, even prolonged periods in our lives, where we can experience genuine joy and fruitfulness and satisfaction. But in place of endless blessing, in place of limitless blessing, we also experience physical and emotional pain. We experience hiding and shame. We experience frustration at work and ultimately 
we all become like the chaff of Psalm 1, blown away by the whirlwind of death. And yet, the curse does not just impact our physical and relational lives. Genesis 3 ends by telling us that God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, verse 24. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And now every one of us must live our lives east of Eden, a fact that was literally sewn into the great curtain in the temple, the curtain that barred the way into the most holy place where God dwelt. Because the same cherubim guarding the way back to Eden were embroidered <clears throat> into that curtain as a reminder, no entry. There is no way through. There is no way back to God's presence. There is no way back to the garden. You cannot return to the truly blessed life without the sword of God's judgment falling upon you. And so... If Aaron's blessing, if the great high priestly blessing of number six tells us that to be blessed is to have God turn his face towards you and to smile upon you, the reality is that from our first parents on, we have lived under the curse, the curse of being turned away from his presence. Now, if Genesis 3 was the end... It would be terrible, wouldn't it? Genesis 3 is just the beginning. And in Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham and says to him, I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's God saying? He is saying, he is making it clear that he has a plan to reverse the curse and to bless the world. And he is going to do it through the offspring of Abraham. Listen, it is not just you who wants your life to be blessed. God does. The question is, if that is what God wants for you, how do you get it? How do you achieve it? Last point then, Christ, the way back. And in Galatians 3, Paul tells us that when you realize that you can't live the, blessed, the truly blessed life apart from your creator, apart from God, you're faced with a choice, aren't you? You're faced with two ways to try and seek God's blessing. But what Paul tells us is that only one of those two ways works. And the first way is by trying to earn God's blessing, by obeying God's law. Verse 10, as Paul says, to rely on the works of the law. That if I live right, if I, if I can just get my life together... If I can break these bad habits, if I can start living an upright, righteous kind of life, if I, if I do good things, if I obey God, God will bless me. I will do my part and God will do his. Paul says that never works. Verse 10, 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, think that you can earn God's blessing by living a good life, by living a righteous life. You're you're never going to achieve that life of blessing because you can't live the perfectly righteous life. Because the law requires you to obey all of it. Every detail of it. Every moment of the day. And who's going to put their hand up and say, I can do that? Because all of us have bad days, don't we? In fact, the truth is we have multiple bad moments throughout individual days. Multiple moments when we're angry or impatient, when we're self-centered or selfish. And so to live thinking, I need to earn God's blessing, leaves you under a curse. Firstly, because you're always going to feel cursed. You're always going to feel anxious. Am I doing enough? Have I done enough? How am I comparing to other people? And that sense of condemnation will hang over you like a cloud. But secondly, you'll be under a curse because you stay under the curse. Because the judgment of the law really does stand against you. You have not kept this in full. You cannot keep it in full. So you really are condemned. So trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn his blessing, is never the doorway into that life of blessing that he has for you. Instead, Paul says, there is a way in, and it is the way of faith. But this time, not faith in your ability, Not faith in you living the right kind of life or what you can do, but faith in what Christ has done for you. Verses 11 to 13. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so as Christ hung upon the cross, he became a curse for us in ways that we can never fully understand. Christ absorbed into himself to the last degree the curse of God upon our sin, upon our law-breaking. And he absorbed into himself all of the frustration and the futility of a creation that is out of sync with its creator. It all fell upon him. And he didn't just experience what it was to be cursed. The ultimate blessed one, the only one who has ever perfectly fulfilled the law, He became that curse. And so, as Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, so at the cross, God the Father turned his face away from his beloved son as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As they were sent away into darkness, so Christ was cast into darkness. And the sun was blotted out. Why? Because he became a curse that you might be blessed. I mean, think of that the blessing of Aaron 
Think what it means to be blessed. Christ was cast off so that you might be kept. The Father turned his face away from Christ so that he might turn his face towards you. He was plunged into darkness that the light of God's countenance might shine upon you. He was in distress so that you might experience peace. So it was there at the cross, as Satan bruised Christ's heel, that Jesus crushed his head. Because as he breathed his last, the curtain with its embroidered cherubim, barring the way to God's presence, was torn in two. Why? Because the flaming sword of God's judgment had fallen upon Christ. And the way back to blessing had been opened. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2 that it was at the cross that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, the serpent and his minions, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Because on the third day, God raised Christ from the dead and death died and the curse lay broken. You and I, can never earn God's blessing. But what we cannot do, Christ has done. Galatians 3.14, Christ became a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What is the blessing of Abraham? How did God bless Abraham? by counting him righteous. It is for God to look at you, to look at you, and for God to count you as righteous because you trust him like Abraham trusted him. It is to hear God the Father say over you, I accept you. It is the blessing of justification that he holds nothing and he counts no sin against you. And it is the blessing of the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts, Paul says, that in Christ, now we don't just have the ability to enter the most holy place, the place where God dwells. Crazily, the most holy place enters us. Christ has torn the curtain down and now by his spirit we become his dwelling place. You see, if you try and live a life, a truly thriving life apart from God, ultimately it's going to fail. Or if you try and earn God's blessing by your own moral goodness, it's not blessing you're going to experience but the unforgiving weight of the law pressing down on you but look to Christ as the one who became a curse for you and the door to blessing is opened wide but you'll also experience something else and that is that the door to obedience has been opened wide to hearing his word and doing it, not because you want to try and earn his blessing, but because you know you already have his blessing. I'll give you some examples. Jesus said, love your enemies, 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. How on earth can you do that? And how can you do that if all the time you are thinking, I've got to create my own life of blessing. It depends on me. Because if these other people who are my enemies, who are standing against me, who are cursing me, you will see them as your opponents, as people standing in the way of the life that you want, as people to be taken out, as someone to be cursed, not blessed. But when you know that Christ has already secured your blessing, you don't need to curse them. Instead, you can bless them. And you can pray for them. You can pray for those who criticize you. You can pray for those who oppose you at work. You can pray and bless those who hold different political views from you. Or listen to what James says about our tongues. With it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now, why do we badmouth other people? Why do you trash someone else's reputation or speak badly of them behind their back? Either because they're badmouthing you or you see them as a threat to the life that you want or because they're not giving you what you want so you can achieve the life that you want. But when you know Christ became a curse for me and in him I am blessed, firstly, that deeply humbles you, doesn't it, when it sinks in. To save me, to save me, Christ, the Son of God, had to become a curse That deeply humbles you because you know that he could say far worse things about you than these other people are saying. But he doesn't. Instead, he blesses you. So how I feel about myself doesn't depend on what this other person is or is not saying or doing. So I don't need to trash their reputation to feel good about myself. I can bless, not curse. Finally, it'll change the way you see the circumstances of life. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, or hungry, or who weep, or who have people curse you and persecute you and criticize you and attack you. And we think, really? I'm blessed when life is hard like that? And the reason we think like that is because we tie the life of blessing too much to our circumstances. Instead, when Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, he echoed God's promise in Genesis 3. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And he's saying that in the circumstance of people attacking them. In other words, not everything is going to be put right until Christ makes all things new in the new heavens and the new earth, when evil is finally defeated. And in the meantime, as Paul says in Galatians 3, you are blessed in Christ Jesus. It's dependent on Christ, not our circumstances. And when you know that, 
you won't be blown around like chaff. Instead, you will find a deep stability and a deep poise, even when life is hard. On the verge of the people of Israel entering the promised land, Moses said to them, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Guys, it's a choice we all face, isn't it? We face exactly the same choice. Try and find life by throwing off God's rules, as Satan tempted Adam and Eve to do, or try and find it by obeying all of God's rules, as legalistic religion would tell you you've got to do. You're never going to find it. All you will find is curse. But look to Christ and trust him, and you will find life. So, choose life. Choose Christ. Let's pray.